The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Extending Survival and Setting Our Sights on Cure in Resectable Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Getting the Details of Paraoperative Immunotherapy Right. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash cdb860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So uh, welcome everyone uh, to this Peerview uh, Symposium. Thanks for those who are uh, kind enough to stick around and for all our viewers uh, online. We'll be talking today about uh, extending survival and uh, setting our sights on cure and resectable non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and we'll try and focus on some of the important details to getting perioperative immunotherapy uh, right. I have the uh, fortune to be uh, sharing the podium t- uh, today with Dr. Al Torki, who I'm sure you all know, uh, who is a, one, of the, one of the greats of thoracic surgery, and uh, it's a privilege to, to do this with you, Dr. Al Torki. So uh, today we're, we're just going to try and have a bit of a conversation about um, all this evidence and data that's coming our way about what to do for uh, early stage resectable non-small cell lung cancer, talk about some of the best practices uh, in stage one to three, and we'll try and do uh, some Q&A and, and try and do some synthesis of all the different things that we need to think about when we're seeing patients in the clinic. So... Um, I'm going to go quickly over this. I think at this point we've all been exposed to uh, the uh, science behind uh, why immunotherapy works and uh, the, why it's interesting in the new adjuvant window. Really, if you have a tumor in place, it's the optimal scenario for your immune system, immune system to interact with the, uh, with the cancer itself. And so this has um, both been shown in, in uh, preclinical studies to be uh, one of the most effective ways to uh, induce uh, T cells that have specificity for neoantigens on the cancer, um, and so that you know it, the the it's basically I think accepted at this point that this is a, a reasonable approach. This is. Uh, to basically bring you all up to speed, if, if you haven't heard of uh, these different metrics of pathological assessment, I think it's really quite important because as we move forward with uh, the introduction of neoadjuvant therapy, we're getting more and more complex uh, pathological reports uh, with new data that our pathologists are learning to uh, implement into the synoptic report. Um, and there are guidelines for how to do this. Uh, this is um, from a paper out of the ISLC consensus statement in terms of reporting pathologic complete response uh, as well as major pathological response. And there are more uh, endpoints like residual volume of tumor, which we'll discuss a little bit in this talk. So before uh, we get into more of the data, I want to get a sense from, from you guys how many of you um, in your post-neoadjuvant treated patients will get uh, any of these various endpoints. Will you get a PCR, an MPR, a YPTNM, a percent RVT? Are you getting none of those, or are you just not sure? So it looks like most people have PCR. Some have MPR. Everyone's, or 63% are getting YPTNM, so a bit concerning if you're not getting that. That should be, a, I think, the minimum. Percent RVT is probably sites that have been doing trials, and none of the above. Hopefully, that's not the case. So, uh, have your discussions with your pathologist because I think this is really valuable information to share with your patients. It has prognostic significance, um, and we need to understand how to uh, interpret it. So, we're going to go through um, basically uh, the data, comparing and contrasting the Checkmate 816 and the DEEM 2 data that Dr. Provencio uh, presented at the World Lung. I think this is a worthy comparison uh, and contrast because a lot of the concerns, in my mind, that emerged out of the 816 data are somewhat addressed in the Nadim 2, not everything, but, uh, but most. If we just look at the uh, baseline characteristics, I know there's a lot of data here, but uh, take my word for it, they're quite comparable. We have patients in their 60s, um, you know, uh, I guess Checkmate A16 obviously has a much larger proportion of uh, Asian patients. Uh, the DEEM2 uh, trial was conducted exclusively in Spain. But then if you look at uh, stage, and um, Nadim 2 is all stage 3 and 3B versus Checkmate A16 being only about 60% being stage 3. Um, so different populations on a staging perspective and on an ethnicity perspective, but same age, 
general operable lung cancer patients. When we looked at pathological response, both have dramatic improvements in pathological response, 24% versus 2.2% complete response in Checkmate one 6 36.8 in the DIM-2 versus 6.9 in, uh, with chemo alone. So why is there that difference? Well, in a, proportion, in a, in a population of patients with exclusively stage 3 disease, I guess you, it's, it's interesting that you have more path-complete response with the Nadim 2. Uh, is that the kind of chemo they were using, or is that just the differences in interpretation of pathology? It's, uh, it's a bit of a strange finding. Kind of chemo. Standard chemo. No, the kind of chemo. The kind, you think it's the kind of chemo? I, I would agree. I, I think... Um, I think there's something about the kind of chemo, the car- carbotaxol regimen, which is administered in ADEM2, which is uh, probably very effective in a, in a fit patient. Let's look at overall survival. So again, uh, reproducible findings, about a, thir- a 12% improvement in overall survival in Checkmate 1.6, and a little over 20% at two years in the ADEM2 uh, cohort. And we also have remarkable performance of the chemo arm, which is a point that you raised, uh, Dr. Altorki, that it's not bad in stage 3A, 3B patients treated with neoadjuvant chemo alone, getting 63% survival. That's as good or if not better than a lot of the trials we've seen in the past. But clearly the addition of nivolumab was, was dramatically uh, better. And we're getting even better survival in the cohort of pure stage 3 in the DEAN2. In terms of some of the concerns, so in uh, Checkmate one one of the uh, criticisms I hear the most frequently is that 17% of the patients did not make it to surgery. Um, that wasn't an issue in, uh, in Nadeem-2. Their uh, 93%, it's obviously a smaller trial, but 93% of the patients in Nadeem-2 make it to uh, the OR. And that's, again, with pure stage 3 patients. Uh, so concerns about progression of disease impeding progress of surgery I don't think really are valid. Um, I think what's very clear is that this highly experienced group of thoracic oncologists and surgeons who've been doing neoadjuvant trials for the better part of the last 30 years are able to get patients through that regimen effectively and deliver uh, safe surgery. The other interesting finding was the R0 resection rate. Um, so we heard some, I'm going to probably pick on Dr. Broderick a little bit more to see if he's got, had some time to think about that uh, reporting of R0 and 816. But we have 83% R0 in, uh, in Checkmate 816 and 92% R0 in uh, Nadim 2, again with more extensive disease, a pure stage 3 uh, cohort. In, in Nadim 2, the R0 resection rate was statistically superior to chemo alone. So again, are, am I concerned about the ability to get R0 in, uh, in a neoadjuvant-treated patients? Uh, I am not, and I think uh, Nadim 2 supports that. Then there's the issue of completeness of response and how it predicts survival. So um, bit by bit, we're building a body of uh, data from the, all these new adjuvant tri- trials that are resulting about the meaning of a pathological complete response. In Checkmate A16, if you had a PCR, whether it be in the chemo-treated or the NEVO and chemo-treated patients, you have remarkably good, close to 100% survival. In ADEM2, more extensive disease, I've said it a few times now, it's a flat line if you've had a complete response. So whenever I'm seeing a patient in clinic, I, that's what I'm aiming for. I want to be able to tell them that they've had a complete response because that's what um, portends the best... Pro- it's the biomarker that we have currently that portends the best prognosis and might tell the patient that they don't need uh, further therapy. So I'll go a little bit more into uh, depth of pathological regression because obviously pathological response is not a binary... Uh, variable. This is, exists on a whole range. And uh, the pathologists at Johns Hopkins, who are the uh, study pathologists for Checkmate one 6 have done an amazing job of characterizing um, pathological response. And you can see that it, it really exists on a gradient. So if you, if you div- divide up the cohort of chemonevo-treated patients into sort of quartiles, you can see that the EFS degrades sort of progressively as you um, have uh, more and more residual volume of tumor. That, that makes sense. Um, so I think, I, I think, yes, we are aiming for pre- PCR, 
but a partial response is clearly better than a less good response. And I think we need to get a better sense of what that means for patients and whether, to what degree they need additional post-operative therapy. Um, this was another interesting piece of data. I often get asked, should we restage the mediastinum invasively after uh, neoadjuvant therapy? And I, I say no, because if the disease is still resectable, I'm going to resect it. Um, and I think this data that was presented at ESMO a few weeks ago further supports that. So essentially what they tried to do is look at whether there was a complete response in the primary and the lymph node basin. This was only in patients who had positive lymph nodes at presentation. If they had pathological complete response in the primary but residual disease in the lymph node, or if they had persistent disease in the primary and complete response in the lymph node. So what you'll see is that if you have a path-complete response in both lymph nodes and primary, you have the best survival. If you have a path-complete response in the primary or the lymph node, you have pretty good survival with EFS of 76% at two years. But if you fail to have a path-complete response in either of those two, that's your worst-case scenario. So if I were to do a mediastinoscopy or an EBUS after induction and have persistent N2, it's possible that there's no disease in the primary, and the patient will have great survival with that. So I'm resecting them. Um, and I, I think especially if uh, you can do that with relatively low morbidity, it's probably the preferred route. What does percent RVT mean? Well, uh, our pathologists are teaching us about what they're seeing in these regression beds. Uh, they're seeing a sort of a fibrotic regression pattern. They're seeing necrosis, and, and they're seeing residual tumor. And so really response to IO is mostly characterized by this regression fibrosis uh, type of pattern rather than a, a tumor necrosis. But have these conversations with your pathologist. Get, get accustomed in your tumor boards to know what they're seeing in your patients so you can understand how to translate that to, to uh, f further therapy and, and what that means for the patients. And again, this regression bed does correlate quite strongly with EFS. So I think at this point, it's, a, it's really a critical biomarker, and I would encourage your, your teams to report this in your pathology reports. Just the last piece of data on 816 that came out just a few weeks ago as well at ESMO, uh, Enriqueta Philly presented the uh, quality of life scores. So we have basically patients in 816 who are within the UK norm for, for um, that's what the purple dotted line is. So these are, are fit, well patients who are minimally symptomatic from their disease, and they remain minimally symptomatic throughout the course of neoadjuvant therapy. So this, this concept that preoperative therapy is going to destroy the quality of life of a patient, making surgery impossible, I think is, is, a, is a bit of a, a fallacy. You can see that quality of life is maintained throughout the preoperative course, and the only thing that does decline and <laughs> decrease the quality of life is surgery. So why would you start with the most impairing uh, portion of their treatment. Um, and so that's another reason why I strongly advocate for neoadjuvant therapy. So uh, last few, uh, last minute here on why I offer uh, neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy to the stage 1B and 2As or the PDL one less than 1% patients, which is often a, a question I get. So just let's get a poll from the audience. Would you offer neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy to a fit 65-year-old with 4.2 centimeter adenocarcinoma in the right upper lobe, PDL one is 10%, and they have normal lung function. Yes, no, I'm not sure. All right, so why do I offer it? Well, when people look at the EFS curves, I didn't show them here for the 1B to 2s, they say, look, there's hardly any difference between the chemo cohort. Yeah, but they got chemo. The chemo cohort got chemo. If you do upfront surgery on this patient with a 4.2 centimeter lesion, over a third of those patients will never get chemo. We know that from the Alchemist data. That's the latest data we have. But we want to give them chemo because I'm showing this as a Canadian trial. I'm Canadian. Um, but when we give chemo to stage 1B patients in the adjuvant setting, it improves their survival very, very significantly. So. Don't forget that when you compare to the quote-unquote control arm of Checkmate 816, it's not really a control arm. It's a, you know, 90% of those patients got chemo. 
uh, and there's a survival benefit associated to that. So I try and get systemic therapy into the vast majority of my patients who have tumors four, four centimeters or greater. And I do that because if I don't, there's this steep decline in DFS uh, if you just do upfront surgery, and we know that we can't get everyone to adjuvant. I talked about path-complete response, so there's a significant improvement in path-complete response in 1B to 2As with chemo and evil. There's a significant improvement in path-complete response in the pdl one negative patients, so I give them the chance because I think that path-complete response is the path to cure. Um, and here's a, a case, so a 4 centimeter tumor in the soup seg, chemoimmunotherapy reduction, patient had a VAT segmentectomy. That's off, off the map of whether we should do that or not, but that's what I did patients doing well. We have a lot more data that's going to come in the periadjuvant space, and uh, that'll kind of open our eyes to, to what that means, and I think that's a good transition for uh, Dr. Altorki. Thank you, John. So, you know, last time we talked about this was in the, um, at the AATS meeting, and there has been some more information that came through. I hope to share with, it to, with you tonight. I'm very grateful for the hardcore of people that still showed up at this late hour. Um, you know, oncologists think that surgery is adjuvant therapy. We think that surgery is the core of therapy. There is good evidence out there that delay of surgery is associated with a poor outcome. And that is why I'm going to advocate today or tonight for adjuvant therapy. No surgical delay. By the time the patient sees you in the office, they've already been delayed by, who knows, two or three months. The median time of waiting is about 90 days. So no surgical delay is not insignificant, especially in cases like the one that was polled that, you know, showed somebody with a potentially resectable disease that may actually go to the operating room. Surgery following new adjuvant therapy can be difficult. That's not a universal statement. In some cases, it can be very challenging. In others, not so much. A lot of it can be done minimally invasively. And there is a proven benefit, John, for adjuvant chemotherapy, not for new adjuvant chemotherapy. So, you know, in, in as much as I can make an argument for this, these are the arguments. So, and of course, that, uh, you know, minimal residual disease is the best environment possible for an effective immune response to act. Now, there are several uh, adjuvant trials ongoing. I think we, we, two of them have already been reported and published, and uh, the others, which is essentially the ANVIL trial and the um, uh, NCIAC BR31 trial is still uh, either ongoing or close to completing its accrual. So this is the design of the trial uh, Empower 010, and uh, here patients with stage 1B to 3A were uh, enrolled into the trial uh, before receiving chemotherapy, but then randomized after they received up to four cycles of uh, cisplatinum-based chemotherapy, one-to-one -to, -one to receive uh, 16 cycles of ectizo or best supportive care, which is essentially just observation. Uh, 1280 were enrolled, and 1,005 uh, were randomized. These, uh, of these, tw uh, uh, obviously, almost 250 patients fell off uh, for diseases of mainly disease progression. And there is a complicated hierarchical testing routine, so the first thing to test for was disease-free survival in the PDL1 expressing stage 2 to 3A, which is the target population. And then subsequent testing was to be done only if this was positive. So for all the 2 to 3As, not only the, uh, the, the PDL1 positive, and then for the intention to treat population that included the, the 1Bs, and only if this was positive will we test it in the uh, overall population. The, uh, the first interim analysis uh, was presented at ASCO in 2021 uh, for DFS. And this is the uh, two arms of the trial, and you can see they're very well, uh, fairly well balanced, especially for histology, 
for PDL1 expression. These are people who got the Cadillac operation, so 80% had uh, mediastinal node dissection, and about 70 to 80% had lobectomy. The majority had this, uh, nearly all had platinum based chemotherapy. And from here, you can see that the most frequently used regimens were cisplatinum venerolbine and cisplatinum bemetrexid. So these were the data presented at ASCO that showed that in the primary population of stage 2 to 3A that expressed PDL1, TISO was superior to best supportive care. Uh, the median, the median disease-free survival was not reached in the TISO group, and there was 35 months in the uh, best, uh, best supportive care. The hazard ratio was 0.66, and the p-value was 0.004. So that was very significant. And again, for all randomized stage 2 to 3A patients, uh, again, ATIZO was superior for DFS with a p-value of 0.02 and a hazard ratio of 0.79. For the overall population that includes included stage 1B, the statistical significance boundary was not crossed and, and uh, the uh, follow-up is ongoing before a final statement can be made about the ITT. So this uh, uh, subgroup analysis shows the impact of various clinical and demographic characteristics on the primary endpoint of disease-free survival. And as you can see, in most of these categories, uh, uh, the results favor ATIZO. I would just point uh, your attention here to the fact that you know it, it appeared from the data and that non-squamous benefited more than squamous, that stage 3A benefited more than stage 1B and 2, and people with nodal disease N1 or N2 did better. There was a a, a, a tendency to see a, a, some kind of a response in the EGFR mutated population, but the numbers are too small to make a statement about that. And we should treat the subgroup analysis the, as uh, hypothesis generation, really not hypothesis testing, because none of these variables are sufficiently powered to make a statement on their own. We presented these data here uh, at the uh, uh, WCLC meeting, I think, two years ago, looking at the impact of various chemotherapies and types of surgeries on the primary disease outcome. Uh, there was some concern. Well, the lobectomy did the best. There's some concern about whether or not patients with pneumonectomy would benefit and whether or not patients who received the doublet of cisplatinum gemcitabine would benefit tomorrow. Uh, Jay Lee will talk uh, about the impact of uh, pneumonectomy uh, uh, on response to uh, on, on DFS for, with ATIZO and how it compares to lobectomy. But the, 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 the story from this exploratory analysis is that the numbers are just simply too small, but the hazard ratio tends in the right direction. So when we talk about biomarkers that can be associated with the improved disease-free survival, the most important one that emerges is PDL1 expression. As you can see, the, the, almost entirely the results are driven by the PDL1 high defined as 50% or greater. Uh, the pe people with uh, uh, 1 to 49% uh, have essentially very little benefit from ATIZO, and patients who do not express PDL1 have essentially no benefit from ATIZO. Another variable that was looked into is circulating tumor DNA, and here there's a large population of patients who had circulating tumor DNA done post-resection. And one of the things that was interesting to me is that stage 1B had about a 10% frequency of circulating tumor DNA uh, after surgical resection. Stage 2, about 20%. Stage 3, about 30%. And my guess is that these numbers would be much higher if we had a super-sensitive method of detecting circulating tumor DNA. But the message of this slide here is to show you that whether, you, whether patients ended up with a positive circulating tumor DNA or a negative circulating tumor DNA, a TISO still was superior in terms of DFS compared to best supportive care. And that was a significant difference. So what about the adverse events? Uh, 
tolerable. I think uh, uh, 20% of the patients had grade 3 4 AEs, which is not unexpected given that this is an active uh, arm of the trial. There was a treatment-related grade, uh, related grade 5 AEs, which is essentially death, occurred in four patients. So consistent with what has been reported in the past with the use of uh, various uh, immunotherapy. In this last WCLC meeting, uh, the, the results of the first interim analysis for overall survival were presented. And as you can see here, there is a trend of superiority in overall survival in the target population of stage 2 to 3A. That is 1% or more. The, the, the hazard ratio here crosses unity and the uh, follow-up for overall survival continues. Uh, there is no, no clear evidence that overall survival, in fact, it doesn't appear that overall survival is improved in the overall population of stage 2 to 3A or in the ITT population. But like I said, the data are immature for overall survival and follow-up continues for this endpoint. Uh, not surprisingly, overall survival was once again similar to D DFS, was higher in, the, uh, in those that expressed PDL1 in more than 50% of the tumor cells. So, uh, the keynote 091, which is the PRO trial, was published, I think, in the last week or two. But essentially, the same group of patients were randomized uh, to uh, receive PEMBRO for 18 uh, courses of PEMBRO versus placebo, randomized one-to-one. -one. The primary endpoint, there were two, co two primary endpoints. One is DFS in all comers, regardless of pdl one expression, and one is DFS, a co-primary endpoint in those patients that expressed uh, pdl one in more than 50% 50, 50 or more of the tumor cells. There is really, no, as you can see here, there, I think 1,100, more than 1,100 patients were randomized. No meaningful differences in the clinical or demographic characteristics between the two arms of the trial. The thing that I would say here is that uh, while Empower 010 mandated that patients not be randomized until they received chemotherapy, that was not the case here. It was simply recommended. 15% did not receive chemotherapy. My guess is that they are mostly stage 1B, although it's possible that uh, more advanced stages also skip the chemotherapy part. The, for the primary endpoint of DFS in the overall population, there was statistically significant difference in uh, DFS favoring the PEMBRO arm with a hazard ratio of 0.76 and a p-value of 0.001. At 18 months, survival was 73% versus 64%. Paradoxically, though, for those patients that expressed uh, PDL1 in more than 50% of the tumor cells, and contrary to what we saw in Empower, and contrary really to what we saw in multiple previous IO trials where the high expressors did best, there was no difference between the arms here. The hazard ratio was 0.8, it crossed unity, the p value was 0.1. And I hear that one possible answer is that the placebo group performed better than expected. Uh, this is, again, an exploratory analysis here. I will draw your attention to the fact that current smokers did really well. Uh, pathological stage, contrary to Empower, again, patients who had stage 2 did better than those that had 3A. Uh, patients that had uh, non-squamous histology did the best, which is consistent with the Empower data. And those that received adjuvant chemotherapy did better than those that did not. Again, the uh, AEs, uh, nothing to report here that is different from Empower. Treatment-related death occurred in 0.7%. Remember, it was 0.8% in Empower. Slightly higher rate of grade 3 to 4. Well, this is 3 to 5, really, so it's hard to compare, but generally in the range of the Empower trial. So what are the differences between Empower 01 and Keynote 091? Well, the number of randomized patients is obvious. The primary endpoint here was disease-free survival in PDL1 expressing stage, stage 2 to 3A. There's two co-primary endpoints, disease-free survival in all comers and disease-free survival in those expressing 50% or more PDL1. You will notice that there were more stage 3 patients 
in Empower than in Keynote, and more stage two patients in, uh, in Keynote than in Empower. Again, we talked about the adjuvant chemotherapy being mandated in one and recommended in the other. There's really no meaningful difference in the frequency of expression of PDL1 in the different strata. I will draw your attention, though, to the fact that roughly 40 to 45 percent of the patients are PDL1 negative. And if you stop to think for a second about the 1 to 49 percenters that we think may not benefit, um, up to 50 percent of those uh, had, had PDL1 expression. So, in, in conclusion, then, the use of immunotherapy in the, in the perioperative management in the adjuvant setting is a, major, a definite major advance. We were talking earlier about the two or three years of COVID have seen such major advances in early-stage disease, Checkmate, Empower, Adora, the Japanese JCOG trial, and now, um, now that we're out of COVID, hopefully, uh, uh, the CLGB trial. Um, which patient should receive new adjuvant versus adjuvant and the additional biomarkers. I will finish with some key, uh, questions perhaps for, uh, to, to think about. Adjuvant versus new adjuvant. That's the question on the minds of everyone. In here, there was a paper, uh, there was a presentation at ESMO in melanoma where new adjuvant was clearly superior to adjuvant therapy in that tumor type. But that tumor type is kind of it's a weird tumor type, so it may not be necessarily transposable to, uh, to lung cancer. Uh, I, I, sometimes I wonder whether the patients with PDL1 expression of 50% of mo or more uh, should be treated just with IO, whether it's adjuvant or neoadjuvant. Remember that there is Keynote 042, I think, which is in advanced disease, where those patients, if they express PDL1 and have stage 4 disease, chemotherapy is, is skipped. And what about the sequence of chemotherapy? As you can see in the Empower and in Pearl, patients got chemotherapy and then the IO. Is it better to give them together? Um, what kind of chemotherapy should you use? What schedule? These are all questions to be answered. What is the role of radiation? For example, Pacific trial, is, does radiation contribute to that? Or a, a, a small trial that used 8 grade times 3 plus IO? And what is the optimal duration of adjuvant therapy? These are very, very, very expensive drugs, and putting people on, on, on that treatment for a year is not without consequence. And, you know, everything has a, has a cost attached to it, uh, their financial or uh, an actual adverse event. How can we guide uh, that using uh, selected biomarkers? And I'll just stop here. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Altarki. So uh, a lot of, yeah. A lot of really thought-provoking questions. Um, we have uh, maybe go right into uh, our uh, cases and uh, and then try and get some discussion going. So uh, here's here's a patient, and I wonder what what you would do. Uh, he, he's 61. Actually, it's it's a female. So I'm sorry. So 61 year old woman, um, ECOG zero, no comorbidities. Uh, she has an EBUS that shows adenocarcinoma. PDL1 is zero percent. There's a KRAS G12C mutation, so it's a clinical T3N1. You can see the disease uh, over here uh, on the interlobar PA, uh, and it extends up into the uh, left upper lobe, but the lower lobe is free, just for your information. Uh, lung function looks good. What's your operation here? So my operation or, my, or how we're going to treat her? Okay, let's say... Okay, well, why don't you start? How are you going to treat yeah. her? Yeah, so uh, you know, or, f f forget IO for a second. Yeah. Okay? In the, in, the, in the era of uh, plain old chemotherapy, I would give this woman induction therapy first. I love it. Okay, what if, what if you decide to operate first? Well, I mean, you know, th there's a high risk of an immunectomy here. And, uh, you know, you possibly could, I mean, she, her pulmonary functions could definitely tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And if she has no other evidence of disease, we would do that. Or perhaps consider at the time of surgery whether you can do some kind of a salvage uh, a reconstructive procedure with a vascular sleeve or a patch angioplasty or something like that. And and how, how aggressively will you seek out that operation, say in the upfront setting, assuming the patient has some sort of contraindication to preoperative therapy? In, a, in, in someone who can tolerate a pneumonectomy, are you, are you pretty um, bullish about trying to do the vascular sleeves and 
patch angioplasties, maybe having close margins or, or I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say bullish. I would say <laughs> I would say, you know, if you, if you could do it and the margins are negative, she's better off for it. If not, an immunectomy is the uh, is is the right answer. Right. Okay, well let's see what the what the uh, room thinks. Do you believe this patient needs a pneumonectomy? So yes. a good number of people so I think that this is, anyways, this is interesting. But so, 32% think she doesn't need an immunectomy. Yeah. Obviously, you need to see the whole scan, but I think the, the, the encroachment on the ongoing PA, I think, is, um, I'm not sure, I think is a reasonable answer. So why don't we go to, to what happened here? So, so, so before you go to what happened, what, what did you give her? Oh, I guess that is what happened. Yeah. yeah. So we put this patient on a trial. Um, she got uh, two doses of carbapaclosaxel nivolumab on trial. Unfortunately, developed COVID uh, after her second cycle. It was mild, but um, uh, our oncologists were reticent to give her the third cycle. We discussed with the medical monitor, and we went on to surgery. As part of the protocol, we, we reassessed her. In my usual practice, I don't get PET scans. Uh, now that we have access to this in uh, in standard of care, would you get a PET scan post induction? Yeah, I would. Routinely. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. She has, you know, the avidity actually kind of went up in the in the hilum, um, and uh, so we took that in consideration going to the OR. Um, this is her surgery. Let's see if it'll play. So it's edited for time, but uh, this is basically us getting around the... You can see it's stuck. So is, is operating after induction more difficult? For, I, I don't for, know. It's, it's, it's stuck. So we got proximal control. We, we got uh, some uh, control on the distal PA, and we're doing a... This is a, a VATS PA sleeve. That's where we find out our clamps are working. Um, and so we're dissecting pretty close to the tumor on the ongoing, but it looks like, uh, looks like clean tissue. And uh, just using big scissors here. So we, we had to sleeve the bronchus and uh, went, went ahead and did the vascular sleeve after that. So the bronchus looked okay. And uh, this is the PA sleeve. And fortunately, no bleeding. Lung comes up. It's a good result. Yeah, it's uh, good. It's she, pretty she cool. did. She did yeah. pretty well. Yeah. But uh, we had to go back and forth. And, and this is this is a highly anxiety-provoking, uh, you know, week or so uh, where you're waiting to speak to your pathologist uh, to talk about the 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 uh, the specimen because obviously we're shaving relatively close margins on what is a big tumor. And in the end, wasn't a great response. So she's YPT2BN1. Uh, it's solid predominant, which uh, usually has worse prognosis. The pdl one's confirmed at 10%. And she has a residual volume of tumor of 61%. So it's not really a great response. And, and we, it was called R0. So uh, that's the outcome. So a question, I guess, for the audience is, to what extent is the avoidance of pneumonectomy important regarding the outcome of, of this patient? So I, I think most people agree it's important to very important. So I think this, this is what, what we're seeing, why the results of 816 are what they are. But, it, you know, the classic teaching is to resect the original tumor bed. And, um, and, and so I, I, I'm, I, how open are you to reducing the, the resection margins or the extent of the operation based on response after but, but, you know, the, I don't think in this particular case it, it makes the point for that. No? This is, no, I think because the, the, the reason for an anemectomy here is the encroachment on the PA, right? So, in essence, you, are, you have resected the entire tumor bed. Yeah. So I don't think the lower lobe was necessarily involved with tumor, and nor the interlobar artery. So I think this she got the perfect operation. And, and you wouldn't have altered your management um, based on on potential for better response, not knowing what what the potential outcome is. I mean that's the problem, right? We're going into the OR with a bit of a black box. We don't really know. You know, you know I, 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 I think you, you're going to the, to the OR with the, with the head that you, you're going to get this tumor out, 
one way or another. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's great that you did this beautiful operation and saved her, her, her lung. I, I think that's great. Boris? Yeah, what do you think, Boris? Well, since we talk about the trials, and I know we talk about neoadjuvant versus adjuvant and surgery, but the field is going forward so fast that this patient should be treated on trial with sotorasib. Uh, new adjuvant <laughs> therapy. This patient had a um, you know KRAS G12C inhibition, and so maybe let's just put it over there that there are trials in this setting as well for another biomarker. And if you see that biomarker and you have that trial, and there are three trials actually, they will be open for uh, KRAS uh, you know G12C, and so that's um, that's maybe going to be in the future. Um, I would have given this patient uh, neoadjuvant therapy just like you did. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do. I personally would not have approached this uh, via VATS, uh, but, I, but I, I agree with the management that you know, PA plasty and, uh, and uh, sleeve resection is the, is the most appropriate thing. Uh, I have other comments or questions to Dr. Altorki afterwards, but I think maybe, maybe there'll be no, some other you can go, go for it. This is why we've got time here. Um, not necessarily for this case, but, I mean, you made some statements about the surgery delay um, worsens outcomes. I would probably qualify that by therapy delay uh, worsens outcomes. Anti-cancer therapy delays outcomes. And when you said the patients, it takes them two or three months to get to an institution and they come in, and should they get an operation the next day? I mean, we're dealing, you know, with, with, with tumor biology, and I think that in that regard, starting, you know, chemo IO in a week, or if you have the biomarker testing, that's an anti-cancer therapy. And I think that is a, that, that, that I think is, is, to me at least, is more important than just, than just going to the operating room. And, and in that regard, when, you, when we talk about these adjuvant data, and I completely agree that it's a tremendous improvement uh, in outcomes and it's FDA approved and everything else, but even in the Pacific trial, there were better outcomes with patients who started therapy, I think, within two weeks, when they started Durva within, within two weeks after chemoradiation, after local regional disease control, than, let's say, if they started four weeks or later. And, and in these adjuvant trials, uh, you know, the randomization occurred after standardized chemotherapy. And so, therefore, the potentially effective treatment was really delayed uh, the, the, and and the, if the contribution of chemo is 5%, and we know from two cycles of Atizo from LCMC3 in the neoadjuvant setting that we have at least, let's say, 20%. So maybe there's a 15% split, and we are, we are, based on the trials, the way they are designed, we are giving the less effective therapy first, and then we give him potentially more effective therapy late. So, so even though these trials are positive, I think that if this therapy was brought in much sooner maybe the, the, the survival curves or the DFS curves would actually be even more robust. Okay, so there, there are what, two questions in, in, embedded <laughs> now. So, yes, so the purpose of, the, of my statement was to get you fired up, and that was achieved. <laughs> uh, there, there, there is, though, I, I think it's important that when there is uncertainty about the results of the clinical trials, that we consider that really the only real treatment that we have for patients with early stage disease that we know is effective is surgery. So in this case that was just presented, there is no uncertainty that this patient needs new adjuvant therapy and the sooner she gets to therapy, whatever that therapy is, the better. But in some cases that is not the case. There is enough uncertainty around the effect size that one could possibly consider that surgery should be the first move. Uh, as to your point about uh, delaying therapy, you know, I hear you and I kind of agree, but not wholeheartedly, because you don't really know whether chemotherapy actually sensitizes people to immunotherapy or not. I think it does. Uh, I may object with the dose of it or the, uh, or the composition of the chemotherapy, but it's really important to think about those things because... In the era of cytotoxic therapy, we were talking about this earlier, you used the treatment to the maximum tolerated dose because you want to kill the cancer cell. That's your only the tool, the bludgeon in your hand. And, and you give it, and then you give more of it. And we know about this four to six cycles of chemotherapy, and then they want to give more post-op, and they want to raise the dose of radiation from 4,000 to 5,000 to 6,000 rads and so forth. This is new. In this instance, we are using this cytotoxic therapy 
as an immune modulator to enhance, the, the, really the main backbone of the treatment is immunotherapy. And in this context, we need to think differently about how we apply it. We may apply it in lower doses. We may apply it in sequence. We may apply it uh, concurrently. I don't know the answer, but I'm pretty sure it's not the answer of the last 50 years. Yeah, I I agree. And I I think with pathological responses and early metric, we can really push our oncologists to be maybe a little bit more creative in in the way they uh, use systemic therapy rather than just applying phase three data in a algorithmic way so I, I totally support that but it will be us that will have to push them it's unlikely to come from the other direction so I, I just wanted to show this uh, Stephen Broderick was kind enough to, to share his uh, presentation with us and it's timely since he, he presented the work this morning but with regards to the pneumonectomy question I wonder if you have some thoughts on, on this um, on this finding would, would you be more open to um, treating patients who might need a pneumonectomy with this uh, with this regimen, if if they can physiologically tolerate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I have, you know, if they if they need adjuvant therapy, we'll give them. We should give them the best adjuvant. I'm sorry, new adjuvant therapy. They should get the best new adjuvant therapy they can get. And if it's if for the time being it's checkmate eight one six, then yep. it's checkmate eight one six. Doctor Harpo, I, I'm going to be heretical here. Is that? I would have done a differential VQ scan on that patient after therapy, and if there was 15% or less function on the left-hand side, I'd put the scope in there and look at that, and if it looked difficult, I would have done the pneumonectomy with that patient's function. I would have done an exercise test. I think what you did was perfect, sure. but I think for me, the key thing of deci- obviously we want to save lung function as much as possible, but if that lower lobe is that, that you saved is not functioning, then I would argue that probably the best thing for that patient, maybe that explains some atelectasis and so forth, is to, on a left pneumonectomy, would go ahead if it's a non-functional lung. Yeah, I think that's a good point, uh, David. All right, we just have a couple more uh, questions, uh, if you don't mind. So we'll, um, I guess, to pull the audience, what's the importance of doing a minimally invasive resection? We had a, an amazing talk by Dr. Walsh about the importance of open surgery. And do you think uh, achieving a minimally invasive resection, even if it's going to be complicated and long, is, is it really that beneficial? So somewhat important. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think sometimes we get inside our heads in the OR and things are moving along and we're, being, we're achieving the goal of doing a minimally invasive operation, but maybe it's not really all that important. What really just matters is getting good cancer surgery. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think it is somewhat important. I think uh, the most important thing is to get the job done. And I can tell you, you know, that we have many adjunct therapies now for open thoracotomies that we can use to reduce the postoperative burden of pain and discomfort. And, uh, you know, we can go through them, you know, whether it's uh, liposomal stuff or or, or cryo, or what have you, but, you know, I have personal experience with these things, and they just work fine, for the most part. So I think that should not, the determinant should be, can we get the job done, and if it requires an open approach, so be it. One of the questions in the, in the chat here is, people were surprised to see the 20% open surgery in stage 1B and 2 from Checkmate 816. My, my take on it is that uh, this is an international trial with people from all over the world contributing, and we know that the adoption of minimally invasive surgery is not universal, so a difficult patient, uh, central tumor might, might be approached by an open technique. Okay, last question. Uh, would you advocate for adjuvant therapy for this patient given the incomplete response? A lot of questions about what to do for the non-PCRs or the high uh, percent RVT uh, patients. Good. So most people would advocate for yes. Now, what my oncologists at our center often say is, well, they've had their three cycles of preoperative. Um, you know, there's no real evidence to give more. What are they doing? It. Uh, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, that we're, I, I think you're in a no data zone, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there will be trials coming out uh, with the new adjuvant and adjuvant uh, components to it. So perhaps we will know the answer. But it is hard to push away a 55 year old who has. 60% residual viable tumor or 30% residual viable tumor say he can't give you anything. Yeah. And you know that if you gave him chemotherapy, he's, it's not going to work. Now, the problem is if you give him adjuvant atezo, who's going to pay for it? Right. 
that, you know, who knows what the answer is, but it is a hard decision that, you know, we, the, 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 the difficult thing is that these trials tell you about a thousand patients, but you have to actually sit in the office and talk to each patient about what is best for them, and that's the hard part. Absolutely. Dr. Yeah. So yeah. there is a there's a neoadjuvant trial for KRAS G twelve C and okay. I think KRAS G twelve C targeted therapy is approved in stage four disease. So um, I don't think that our medical oncologists would give any adjuvant therapy, even though there was PDL one of ten percent. And there, I think there are also commutations like STK eleven and some other mutations where people don't respond. And I think um, at least talking about some of these cases with our oncologists of non-complete responders, they would observe. And if this patient uh, developed metastatic disease, I think he would go on a KRAS G12C inhibitor uh, in the in the metastatic setting. But, but tell me about this new adjuvant G12C. Is that alone or in, with chemo? No, that's with chemo. With chemo. That is with chemo. So there are about three trials. We have one at MD Anderson. There's one being prepared at Hopkins that's going to be the KRAS G12C with and without actually anti-PD-1 inhibitor. And there's a third trial going on uh, in the neoadjuvant setting here as well. Um, great. Thank you. So uh, the last point is about the completeness of resection. And again, uh, Dr. Broderick pre- presented these data uh, this morning. Surprisingly, the R1, R2 resection is not doing that much worse. Uh, any any candid thoughts about that before we close? Yeah, I mean, there's 21 in one arm and 25 in the other, so... Yeah. Uh, I think that's sort of sp- uh, this was, you know splitting it a little too thin. I agree, J- and J- a lot of these patients will get adjuvant therapy. Uh, Dr. Lee, uh, Jay Lee, UCLA. <clears throat> so I like Boris, but I'm going to defer a little bit from what Boris said. Um, the at at World Lung, the Code Break 200 data came out. That's in the first line setting for metastatic uh, non-small cell lung cancer with sotorasib. And the PFS survival advantage was one month. And the OS difference was equivalent. So was, there was no advantage. Uh, there are certain as I th- much... I thought they're still waiting on the OS, or is that not true? That, that's the OS data that was presented. Yeah. Uh, so as much as I'm a proponent of targeted therapies with act- actionable driver mutations getting targeted therapies, even in early stage, KRAS, BRAF are probably... The exceptions, you can argue, argue, have a reasonable argument that IO is the preferable choice, particularly when the standard of care. So in this patient, I mean, we should study the role of G12C inhibitors. The problem right now is we don't know what to pair it with. And the other data, when you have combination of, of immune checkpoint inhibitor with, with the G12C inhibitor, to- toxicity is just way too high. So both with adagrasib ad- as well as sotorasib. So... Um, we still haven't sorted out the dosing issue. Um, liver toxicities are in the 80% range for serious toxicities, so it's problematic. So in a patient like this, even if we had a trial right now, we're still trying to figure out how G12C inhibitors fit into the space. And as a monotherapy drug, you really have to question the efficacy of it, knowing the first-line setting uh, data that we, we recently found out about. Thank you so much. And I, I couldn't agree more that the biology of these... Um, targeted therapies, we've not seen very many complete responses with them, and that probably speaks to what we might expect on the OS front. All right, so uh, that, that's pretty much our, our, uh, our program. Uh, really appreciate you guys um, all sticking through it. Uh, Dr. Altorg, any final thoughts? on? No, thank you all for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great evening, and have a great rest of the conference. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CDB 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Merkin Company, Incorporated.